welcome to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Today's episode is dedicated to the role of hydrogen in the energy transition and is kindly sponsored by Centrica Business Solutions. Join us for an exclusive tour of Saltend Chemicals Park in Hull, future home of the H2H Saltend project, and a hydrogen themed Q&A with Centrica Business Solutions expert. Very warm welcome to this hydrogen themed special edition of ED's long running sustainable business covered podcast. You are listening to the voice of Sarah George, ED's senior reporter. And if you've listened before, this is usually the part of the episode where I bring in Matt Mace, our content editor, and I tell you that I'm in ED's offices in Sussex or that I'm working from home. Um, but there's a little change of scene for today. I've travelled around 240 miles from my home in Sussex to Hull and I'm currently sat in my room at the Doubletree Hilton Hotel in Hull City Centre and I have not completely lost the plot. I am here for a tour laid on by PX Group, the owner and operator of Saltend Chemicals Park. PX Group is one of the UK's largest providers of gas and industrial products. Regarding gas specifically, it's responsible for about 30% of UK supply. The Chemicals Park was taken over by PEX Group from BP in 2018. It has its own gas-fired power plant on site, providing energy for businesses manufacturing things like polymers, biofuels and ammonia. It also has a small fossil-fueled hydrogen production unit, so a little grey hydrogen facility. Um, But for me personally, and hopefully for you as well, it's perhaps the future of the park that is the most exciting part. There's 90 acres of the park free at the moment and set aside for new projects, including H2H Salt End. H2H Salt End will include a large-scale blue hydrogen production plant, blue hydrogen being hydrogen that's made using natural gas with process emissions largely captured using man-made technology. And this blue hydrogen will be used to fuel switch the gas-fired power plant and to serve the businesses on the site in the first instance. This will assist with the decarbonisation of the park's operations. The park forms part of the Zero Carbon Humber Cluster Scheme, which is an industrial cluster scheme targeting net zero by 2040 and receiving support from the UK government to do so. Very shortly I'll be heading downstairs. I've been told we are getting a minibus to the chemicals park so I'm expecting a very uh, school trip style outing. Um, The next thing you hear will be sound bites from our tour of the site. Apologies in advance for the fact that this will inevitably have worse sound quality than anything we record in offices, um, studios and similar rooms. The park is 370 acres um, and it is a fully working industrial hub. So at a minimum, we can expect a thousand people to be working on site and at maximum um, with turnaround staff on site, 1,500, 1,600 or so. Um, So obviously these people will be moving around on foot, on bike and on vehicles. um, And there's an array of noisy infrastructure, including steam venting. 
And through that noise, the next voices you hear will be those of PX Group's Managing Director of Green Energy Parks, Power and Fuels, Jay Brooks, and the company's Group Director of Growth and Innovation, Patrick Pogue, Pat Pogue, who are kindly putting on the tour for us today. I'll be holding our trusty ED podcast recorder while dressed in, I've been told, full body PPE, including very glamorous orange boiler suit, hard hat and uh, safety goggles. So yeah, let's head over to the site. Um, interestingly, the air products, that's quite a nice shot. Yeah, there's a wind turbine in the background as well, uh, which is um, current because that's right next to the, the Siemens manufacturing facility. That's a couple of air separation plants, the tall box-like plants, as I say, it, they produce large amounts of oxygen, which is sucked out of the air. Yes, it's energy intensive, but a couple more of those units will be produced, ready to feed the H2H um, Equinor Salt N project, okay? So there's an example. Uh, there's no space capacity on those. That's why the question earlier from somebody, there, there will be additional units. Just an aside on the air separation. So we, we're all aware of COVID. And if you think about the need for oxygen for medical purposes, so that facility provides oxygen to the site, but then it also produces liquid oxygen. So that, that was one of the UK strategic plans for putting oxygen in to treat people who were dying from COVID. So it was absolutely vital that kept running for the country during the pandemic. When we put cooled water into all these chemical plants, um, it warms up. Just like your car radiator, the engine needs cooling, these plants need cooling. So what comes out is really rather warm water. And we want to reuse that water to, um, to save using fresh water all the time, because that's a fundamental energy efficiency piece. So you simply spray um, the warm water in, in at the top in some spray bars and it, it's a shower. It's a giant shower and the warm, really, the steam element then comes out the top and you can see that gentle steam. It's pure water that comes out the top. How do, and the water then that sprays down in the shower and the water at the bottom is cool. How does that work? Um, if, if you remember your O-level physics or GCSE physics, I should say, lick your hand, blow on your hand, your hand feels cold. Why? Because the high energy molecules which are zooming around in the water, lift off your hand and produce steam, and that's called latent heat of vaporization. That's how the cooling tower works, and it's all about reusing and save, saving water. The purpose of stopping here, so that's the physics lesson over, uh, the purpose of stopping here is to show you a large steam methane reformer, a hydrogen plant, okay? So that big gray plant over there is a, is a it's called a terrace wall, that's the type of design, hydrogen plant. That takes in natural gas, CH4, methane. So today that's been around for about 15 years, I would guess. You can see it's in good shape. It's been relifed. It's been very well maintained. But today that produces gray hydrogen. For the H2H salt end, we, the project would be to build two or three rather similar plants to that, but it would capture the carbon from the, from the natural gas so methane CH4 is what feeds into it that's natural gas and we strip out the carbon the C bit and we're left with the H bit which is what we want that's the simple version of the steam methane reformer so we'd have a couple of those more modern versions which would then go from being grey to, to, to blue which is a step in the right direction clearly if we have those for the H2H decarbonisation project the next fantastic opportunity is directly replace that one. So instantly we've swapped a grey plant for a blue plant, which is the step in the direction, right direction. Also, as part of the 
large equine uh, competition process, there's a facility that we've, e we've earmarked for green hydrogen as well. Green hydrogen will come later when there is an excess of green energy available in the UK. So you need the renewable energy from offshore wind to electrolyze the water yeah. to produce the but, green hydrogen. The key word is excess though, because if there's any green energy available in the UK today, then we should just put it into the grid and, and replace, well we've replaced coal, which is fantastic. You know, now we're on the journey of replacing natural gas. So it, that, it'll be a long time until we become like um, um, Iceland, where there's a true net amount of um, green energy available in the UK. One of the things I'd like to um, point out, um, the construction site, the large box unit there, is um, Trakoya UK Limited, TUK, and this is their lay down area where they lay it down, all the pre-construction piece. That's the wood chip acetylation plant. So that's producing the new um, um, water stable um, wood product that will replace a lot of plastic and metals in our houses. So that's that metal construction yeah. just um, in front of the cooling tower. And well, the Virgo chimneys that I mentioned, the three chimneys in the background, again, that's a brewery. That's a giant brewery. It's the UK's biggest brewery, depending how you look at it. Their first process is to make 4% 4 alcohol. So that's beer to you and I. Um, uh, but then you don't drink it and then they process it up to over 99% pure ethanol, bioethanol. So that's a giant brewery effectively and I'm pleased to say there's two out of the three trains that I talked about which are running today. Okay? So Virgo was around £350 billion investment quite some years ago and then you think of the scale of the investment that's coming. It'll give you a feel for how much bigger the, the, these projects are going to be. Pipe rack. This is the bread and butter infrastructure that PX own, operate, and maintain. So all the clients needs to get products from the tank to the ship or the ship to the road tanker, and products all go through these sort of pipes. We've got oxygen, nitrogen, steam. There's cooling the insulated water. one. Cooling water. So this is how we pump round all the products between all the tanks and clients that you see. So our job is to maintain those very, very well. Um, stopped here to show you um, actually a bit better version of the trade effluent. There's a, there's, a, there's a glamorous bit of our plant, but you can see one, two, three very large water storage tanks that takes into the, the effluent, the trade effluent, the water that we then mix to minimise um, using, using um, fresh potable water. Another piece, um, this little bit, TUK, Trakoya UK, this is a construction city, a construction village. So when you build one of these plants, and you can see the TUK new plant being built there, you have typically two, three, four hundred people, and they all need safe housing and, and, and construction villages. The plot that all that's on, between here and the, the big six grain silos there, that's, that's the, the Virgo bioethanol plant again. You can see that the size of it and why it costs 390 million pounds to build. Um, between here and there, that land, that 10 acre slot, is earmarked for the um, uh, waste, to, waste to fuels project. So that's our first waste to fuels project. Once we've cleared this build construction project off, we'll then go into preparations and construction for our first waste to liquid fuels. Um, okay, so here you get the Virgo, snapshot of the Virgo fuels in the distance effluent treatment and our our stock bread and butter uh, pipeline networks. So there's over over 50 acres earmarked for the Equinor development. What we're seeing here today is between the big shed on the left hand side 
all this land with really not much. It looks a bit busy, but you can see it's only surface-like construction all the way up to the power station. This will be cleared, and this is an option for Equinor to build their build HH salt end. I'm pleased to say there's another option a bit further on the site of, of 22 acres, and that's there. They're keeping both options open. Where I think it will go is we'll use this area for the laydown and pre-construction. The contractor cities, the big infrastructure that goes purely for construction of these things, the 600 people or however many it'll be for two years, and then they'll build it just over there. So we're, we're, we're in the process of getting ready to level this to the ground, ready for Equinor. Is that fair, Pat? Yeah, we've offered them, if, they, if the project needs it, we'll level everything that you see there, because it's just cosmetic really, it's not process plant. Hopefully that gave you a little bit of a flavour of what it's like to be at Salt End Chemicals Park. And I'll be the first to admit that it's very different to see these sort of facilities in a press photo and to go on the company's virtual video tour online and to receive like loads of written information about the, the site than it is to actually be there. Um, I need to tell you that after recording that last sound bite, um, we were invited to climb to the top of the gas-fired power plant to look at the park from above. So I had to switch the recorder off for safety reasons. It's around 240 feet high. So as you can imagine, this is nerve wracking for anyone with even the slightest fear of heights or the stairs inside a sort of grid. So you can see through your feet to the to the floor below. So yeah, if anyone's listening and is planning planning to go, yeah, flat shoes, sensible shoes and don't look down. Um, and climbing gas fired power plant is also a very sweaty business. Uh, there's lots of stairs, you're in full body PPE and you're inside this very warm building and you can sort of feel the sweat pouring off of you. It's, it's like the Stairmaster at the gym times 100. But it's, it's definitely well worth it. When you get to the top you can see all the different parts of the, the park together and really see how they work together in systems to provide each other with energy and with products and to help manage waste. You can also see super clearly the gaps where the H2H salt end infrastructure is going to go. So perhaps I'll be lucky enough to come back in a few years and see that in full operations and it will be a very different landscape from the top of that plant. For now though, I am pretty relieved to be down from the roof and out of my PPE um, to hand over for a discussion with Patrick Pogue. As I mentioned, Pat is PX Group's Director of Growth and Innovation and plays a key role in H2H Salt End. Yes, thank you so much for your help with the tour today, um, Patrick, and for taking the time um, to sit down afterwards. Um, how often do you get to do that sort of tour in your role? It's quite, quite often at the moment. Yeah. I think uh, from a, a discussion today, there's a lot of activity on the site, a lot of interest in Salt End and the from investors stakeholders uh, government ministers politicians it's everyone wants to come and see uh, so i think probably two to three times a week at the okay. moment we're, we're, we're doing this and and showing people around salt end mm. a bit luckier today with the weather than sometimes yeah i was going to say there's worse ways to spend a day one of them being what we've just done today but in the pouring rain it's a lovely day here today and, and we got our steps in so that's really good yeah. so i feel good about that Great. Um, and now for the first part of this, I have various sound bites from the tour, but we haven't sat down and properly introduced yourself. So for the benefit of those listening, um, it'd be great to get an introduction to yourself and what your role as Director of Growth and Innovation here at okay. the site entails. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm Patrick Pogue, uh, 
I've been with the PX business for just come up seven years now. Uh, my role is, is very much commercial, commercially driven, uh, investment driven, and, and looking at large projects for, for Salt End. I've, I've been involved in the Salt End site uh, since we acquired this business from BP in 2018. So I was, I was a, a key part of the team that did the acquisition, which was was good fun. And then really staying on to support the operating team and the, the management team. I'm part of the management team at Salt End as well. Uh, looking to, to, to what we do for the future, how we grow Salt End, uh, how we attract uh, and promote and develop the investors that want to come here, as well as the the, the necessary support to the, the existing businesses and uh, the, the customers and the partners that are already mm -hmm. here. So very much about uh, growing Salt End for the future. Uh, and then as we've talked about today, the, the, the next objective after that is what do we do after Salt End and developing uh, a new green uh, new green manufacturing park, green energy park, green chemical park, and that's part of our plans for the, for the, for the future as well. Mm. It's been clear to see as well how much of that, when I saw the title Growth and Innovation, I was sort of like, well, what does that have to do with um, the low carbon transition and hydrogen? And the answer is everything. It does, really. it does. And I, I'm hoping that one of the things that... Uh, would come across to yourselves and your colleagues today is the fact that the the the, the energy transition, the drive for decarbonisation, the drive for sustainability, we believe, and I think there's good evidence of it, is that is in driving that is driving the investment case towards Salt End. So the, the projects that are coming that want to locate here, looking at Salt End, it's a key part of their decision making. Uh, it's a key part of their thinking for the future, and. Uh, Again, I think hopefully one of the other things that have come across today as we've had a look around is the, the pace of that development and the, the level of interest is probably uh, unparalleled. And certainly in my experience from, from my, my, my uh, previous history in, in doing this sort of thing. Mm. And you've mentioned that it's priority for developers, but clearly it's priority for yourselves as well. I mean, we've just been talking off of this um, in, a, in a sort of lunch meeting. We've just had yes. a nice little lunch um, about how sometimes there's projects and there's more projects and there is space hence they're looking for additional space but that some of these projects aren't the right fit in terms of the type of innovation and whether that is low carbon sustainable G otherwise. Generally the, the, the developments and the investors that are coming to us uh, they they will fit uh, and they're looking at sustainable futures they're looking at clean manufacturing they're looking at the the, the options for, for using clean energy and clean feedstocks, so they, they, they will do. Also a strong drive for having the, the ability to connect into carbon capture infrastructure, that's a, a, a key point that, uh, that the projects and the investors are looking at. But also we, we have had some uh, occasion projects that, that don't quite fit, maybe more around logistics and, and storage and, and, and movements. and. Uh, I think one of the, the focuses for us at Salt End is, is um, this type of is, is heavy uh, industrial manufacturing with, with key energy demands. So that it's important that we do look at clean energy mm -hmm. uh, and clean feedstocks to them, but also that ability to, to, to decarbonise in the future. So it's high energy users where we have the capability to drive efficiencies, to optimise those. Uh, most fits, sometimes it doesn't quite mm -hmm. work and, and there's, there's different locations for, for that so if you're looking at a storage facility or logistics movements there's different types of manufacturing and 
industrial parts would fit. Mm-hmm. Of course, and we can zoom in on one of those fuels, hydrogen, the topic of today's yeah. podcast in a moment, but I did want to zoom out for a bit and talk about the Zero Carbon Humber. Um, so I wanted to get a bit about your involvement um, in in yeah the decision-making and the growth process for and that. So, so I personally was... I joined the very first meeting that was Equinor-led, which I think was at the Holiday Inn in the Marina in Hull. It must have been more than perhaps three years ago now, when the concept of uh, a cluster uh, decarbonisation was was brought forward. There was a a range of businesses, industrialists, uh, academics from right across the Humber region that went to that meeting. Uh, and Equinor proposed the concept. Uh, they included Drax, included National Grid Ventures, included Centrica, PX, uh, plus a host of others. And at the time, it seemed this this is such a huge thing to to, to really think about decarbonising that the entire industrial base across the Humber was almost unbelievable at that time. And then the pace of change, and suddenly the the, the progress was made. It, it was it was absolutely staggering to to see that over over the last few years, even more so given that the fact that it was two years was in lockdown and during the pandemic, which, uh, so for, for things to still move through that period was quite quite amazing. Mm. And you've mentioned that some of the things that are going to be there, so specifically carbon capture and hydrogen, combined with the fact that a lot of this is covered by Freeport status, is making this super exciting um, for people to come on board. But I wanted to yeah get a bit about the specifics of H2H Salt N for the benefits of people listening so I'd love to get views on yeah where we're at with that and what the time scales look like because so we've, we've just been up on the roof looking at yes. where it will go yes but yeah. at the moment I couldn't show you a picture of it. no no, no. We, we've seen today plants that are very similar we've seen hydrogen plants we've seen some of the infrastructure we've seen seen the air separation unit of air products all of that type of plant will be will be very similar to what's being deployed for h2h salt end so the the status of the project at the moment is uh, Equinor has been through a process initially looking at site selection and where to locate. Uh, the selection for Salt End was made earlier this year, which from PX perspective we were really pleased with that and uh, they have their land areas available within the Salt End uh, facility. Uh, they currently have three uh, consortia, uh, which is like global global players mm-hmm. in terms of hydrogen deployment and technology, working uh, on a on a bidding process, uh, each with slightly different technologies, each with a different approach. But it's a competitive bid process between those three consortia, and later on this year, Equinor will select one of those uh, partners to take forward into a full uh, front end engineering and design program to really develop the, the, the project to the next stage and then that will lead and that will take about a year uh, to complete that detailed engineering and design and then that will, will come to the point where they get final investment decisions. So, so decision on the preferred consortium and contracting partner for, for the engineering procurement and construction phase later this year and then a year of engineering. Mm. And I understand that each of those consortia are using slightly different technologies for how to capture the carbon, how to produce the hydrogen. In, in, in more so in terms of the hydrogen production, so that they will they will have slightly different technologies, but each of them have technologies that are, they're already deployed in terms of 
production and manufacture of hydrogen at, at large scale. Mm-hmm. Great, and as we were going around today, we did see a grey hydrogen unit, I think Ineos is managing yes. um, that one, and sometimes we speak to green groups that say, well, we should be going straight from uh, grey to, to green, and I'm not really sure about the, the benefits of blue. So okay. how does PX and and the, the other businesses here see blue hydrogen is fitting into that timeline yeah. is it a stepping stone on the way to, to green uh, I think that there's, there's a there's an opportunity for both so the the proposal here at salt end we, we have a, a large energy demand at site in terms of heat and power uh, we've got a, a hugely important manufacturing uh, uh, business at salt end with the various site partners and they make a lot of products that couple of million tons of product they, they use a lot of energy to produce those products whether it's power whether it's steam uh, a lot of other services so the the proposal at salt end is to fuel switch the the power supply which comes from the triton power station currently that uses natural gas and the proposal is to, to fuel switch that to hydrogen now the scale of the capacity of the triton power station uh, and the hydrogen demand that's needed for that uh, it, it has to be blue mm-hmm. in, in the time scale that we want to do it to achieve the carbon emissions in the, in the similar sort of time frame in time the, 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 the green hydrogen capacity will, will come forward, the technology is growing the, the, the ability to generate the, the volumes that are needed uh, will, will, will come in place and and so both will fit, both will be part of salt and uh, as we move forward and it's the, it's the scale of the blue hydrogen that, that's available today mm. and can be deployed with, with such large capacity. Mm. Everything at Salt End is big, it's really, as you've seen, uh, it's a big a big site, uh, the, the, the volumes of utilities, the volumes of products, uh, the, the, the scale and size and complexity of the assets, it's all on a huge scale so we need that capacity for, for hydrogen as well. So will will Triton be the only user of the hydrogen that's produced, or will it be used by businesses on site for direct heat, or will it be sent off site in some cases? Triton Triton will be the anchor customer for the hydrogen uh, hydrogen produced from H three H salt end, but there's also the the aim and the objective to develop a much wider hydrogen market, both at salt end but further afield. So I, I know that uh, part of the, 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 the work that Equinor and others have been doing is to look at other potential users within the, the site boundary itself and further afield. Uh, so a good example is the Yorkshire Energy Park, which is a new development which is just to the north of Salt End. They will have an energy asset uh, at the centre for, for supplying site energy to their their investors, their 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 development projects. Uh, initially, that will probably be a gas-fired asset, but in time, that too would fuel switch for hydrogen. So that's a, another use of hydrogen in the market. But as we said, hydrogen is also part of the one of the building blocks of the chemical products at Salt End. So using the hydrogen as well as for a fuel for the power, we'd also we'd hope that the the hydrogen then be deployed on site within the chemical uh, building blocks and then that f- flows right through the rest of the site. So mul- multitude of users. Mm-hmm. Longer term, uh, we see a lot around uh, 
the, the decarbonisation of transport. So uh, it, it, it's building capacity in terms of transport and then hydrogen fuel vehicles, particularly in, uh, in large goods fields. So they will, I'm sure they will be part of the longer term development plans uh, and then that will come as well. So, so wider opportunity just more, more so than the initial, the initial projects that we see. Great, and Triton is quite noisy on site, so I'm just going to recap something that was said there. So is it correct that with the fuel switching that it would go to 30% before going to the 100? Yeah, the, the, the initial sense of the, the, the proposal is that uh, with the existing uh, technologies and the, the, the gas turbines, uh, the, 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 the intent is to, to fuel switch initially 30% of the, the gas that's produced. Uh, longer term there may be options to to go up to a hundred percent but that may well entail deploying new technology gas turbines uh, rather than the existing technology with modifications mm. that makes sense because it was noisy i was hoping yeah. that matt from the power <laughs> station was given a, a similar sort of uh, overview as, as to me as that yeah one. it makes sense because we've looked at hydrogen blending for home heating and things like that and that's up to blends of i think 20 to 25 yes, percent yeah. depending on where you are so it makes sense that after a certain amount it and, might need and I, and I think uh that the major turbine manufacturers uh globally are all looking at how they deploy technology to hopefully transition from natural gas turbines for generation to hydrogen and they're, they're all moving at a pace in order to bring that into the market. Mm. And we've we've covered so far about how the market's moving really and how investment's moving and how looking at growth and innovation and investment now inevitably means looking at um, net zero but a big part of that is policy um, as well so I wanted to talk to you about when we look at H2H salt end and other hydrogen things happening um, in the region about the energy security strategy so this was just a matter of weeks ago um, under which the UK government doubled its 2030 target for the amount of blue and green hydrogen generation capacity the UK um, should host. So what was the reaction like to that? As an individual, probably some nervousness, because we all watch the news and you think, goodness me, you're looking at what the, the market's doing in pricing. And then there was all the, the discussion uh, coming through about, well, we need to get security of supply. There was talk in Germany of bringing back nuclear and coal plants. And, and you think, goodness me, it would have been easy just to to step back from it a moment. And we'd, I guess we'd all seen pictures of uh, Boris in Parliament, number 10, meeting with energy businesses and companies. And then to see that the, the one of the outputs was actually, we're going to double our capacity and then sort of like push it forward for even more hydrogen. I think that was a real, real positive and a, a real signal that, yeah, there are issues, there are real challenges at the moment cost, price and security all coming through but that was uh, I hope uh, an, an added signal that yes we're still committed to this and the pace will still be there in terms of policy we, we've, we've seen already the, 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 the big cluster across the UK uh, the cluster secured funding uh, public funding in quite significant amounts some time ago now to do that deployment, initial deployment uh, for the carbon capture and infrastructure uh, so that's being deployed and as we've moved forward the, the, there's a real momentum around the, the level of activity that mm. the developers are doing. And as you asked me about the, the, the number of visits, the, the, the Equinor team is building and building and building and getting more presence on site and coming to site and that includes their technical partners, 
includes their consortium partners. So it, it feels very real in that sense. Mm. Uh, and that's the same with the other investments that are coming through to site. There's a huge amount of activity going on and it's, it's, it's not just on paper, it's actual real engineering works, full-scale permitting, full-scale planning applications, so everything is just happening at a real pace and, and driving things forward. So I think with that, with the, 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 the level of activity, the, the level of investment uh, attractiveness, and the fact that government is actually pushing forward and, and with it, maybe sometimes you want it to go faster and decisions to come quicker. And sometimes there will be delays in decision-making uh, as other priorities, but I, I feel very confident of, of things moving forward. Mm. And you've mentioned that like a long-term target is a great signal, so the 10 gigawatts for green and blue hydrogen by 2030. This is often said about net zero by 2050, that it's a good, clear, long-term signal, but obviously it doesn't get the work done in and of itself so is there anything else that you think needs to be done in the meantime I know that the hydrogen strategy details a new business model um, for for hydrogen for example I think I think it's, it's, it's getting through those the, some of the business models quite rightly need to have industry consultation public consultation and the, the, the feedback from those has to come through in time and, and then and then implement it uh, I think some of the, 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 the cases where the, there are clear decision points within competition processes for sequencing, uh, they're important, they're important. They may move or slip a little bit, but as long as it's not too distant in the horizon, I think the, the, the projects can work within them and they, they can continue. As long as there is a, a point where you know that you're going to get some degree of certainty in order to get to the next stage. Mm. So it, th these are stage processes. Uh, you have to do quite a lot of front-end work to get to a certain point. Then you go into more detailed engineering design. Uh, through that, you're doing the planning and the permitting, and, and, and so it's all leading up to a final investment decision. Yeah. You don't get this uh, in the press releases. Uh, you don't get this level of detail. Yeah. So so you have to go through all this. So this stage process, so as long as Government bring forward policy and implementing can 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 go with the project development timelines and they they are big capital projects. There is a lot of work that's needed up front to get to the investment decision, and then there's a the construction period. They're, they're, they're big projects to build, so a couple of years, two to three years, sometimes build out, and then you've got the operating period. But once they're in, you've got a, an operating period for typical plan would have a 25 year plus operating life so it's important that uh, legislation policy sits with the lifetime of the plant as well or to, to enable the sufficient confidence to make that investment decision so I think that's that's important as well. Of course. Well, I'm I'm aware that I've kept you for quite a long time today and, and everyone's been very welcoming, very willing to show us around, very welcome to give us many beverages and snacks, but I probably should be dashing off to get my train and let you get back to your to your day job, Pat. So Thanks, thank Sarah. you so much for taking the time on the podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Yes, a big thank you once again to Pat and the rest of the PX team for the tour. And I hope everybody listening enjoyed following me across England and across the park for the first part of this episode. 
I'm now going to leave and pack up my things and get ready for the train. So join me after the jingle for part two, where I'll be back at EDHQ and speaking with our sponsors, Centrica Business Solutions, for some hydrogen Q&A FAQ. Yes, hello and welcome back to this second and final part of this episode of ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. After touring the future location of one of the UK's major blue hydrogen projects in the first part of this episode, my feet are now firmly back under my desk at home so I can help to answer some FAQs on hydrogen with William Mezzolo. William is the head of hydrogen at Centrica Business Solutions, who are kindly supporting this episode as part of their hydrogen masters series with Edie. I'll run through how you can access the other parts of that series after our discussion. Um, As well as this episode, we also have a masterclass webinar and a downloadable report. But back to today's guest, Um, William holds a PhD in biogas and bioenergy production and potential and has been working full time on decarbonising gas in the UK for more than three years. Um, I'm delighted to have some time booked in with him to answer some common questions about hydrogen production, use and policy in the UK. So without further ado, let's play that discussion with William in full. Yes, hello, Will. It is a delight to have you on the podcast today. Where whereabouts are you dialing in from today? Hi, Sarah. Yeah, really good to, to be here. Um, yeah, I'm in um, in Centricus Trading uh, Office in Central London, which is uh, just off Bond Street. So uh, yeah, excited to be here. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time. And yeah, sorry I couldn't come up to London to see you face to face today. So right. yeah. Um, great to be here for this hydrogen themed podcast. I feel like the obvious place to start for people that are listening and might not have met you um, with a brief introduction to yourself and your role. Uh, sure. Well, um, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, very excited to be in this role. Um, so I uh, re- relatively recent, recent joiner to Centrica. I'm head of hydrogen um, with, and it's managed within one of our divisions called energy markets and trading. But really, it's um, it's a unit that facilitates commercialization of hydrogen and trying to bring hydrogen to our customers um, really across the whole value chain of Centrica. Um, I've been involved in greening the gas network for many years. I was a biomethane developer in the UK, so I used to build and operate biogas plants. Um, and I've seen the power of how industry can decarbonize a sector, particularly a hard to decarbonize sector. And that's why I've got a real passion for hydrogen, because I can actually see the same um, transition that hydrogen can do to, to net zero. Um, and I should sort of say I, I, I'm the chair of the Renewable Energy Association's uh, Green Gas and Hydrogen Forum. So I do I have an ear of the industry and a lot of excited um, developers who are keen to uh, to develop and decarbonize the, the energy supply system. Great. Well, thank you for the overview. And it does feel that we are at something of a hydrogen moment um, with policy and the industry coming coming together. But as you mentioned, we're at this key moment for commercialization. Um, of low carbon hydrogen. So for people that that are listening and thinking, well, how is this going to happen um, when we have such a volatile energy market, um, when the news is the way that it is um, at the moment, how can we make sure that this continues to drive decarbonisation and that we do continue to accelerate that transition, ultimately getting to yeah, a commercial point for low carbon hydrogen? Yeah, it's a really good point. We're in pretty unprecedented times with the energy 
uh, volatility uh, in, in all commodities, really, in energy commodities. Um, and actually, we see as um, decarbonisation as a as a means of actually um, stabilising and de-risking um, customers away from the volatility of energy prices. Um, decarbonisation will not take one route; it will take a number of different routes. So that in itself is de-risking because you're diversifying your energy sources. Your reliance on a single source will gradually disappear, and that's really the the whole thing around hydrogen is there are such a big myriad of ways you can make hydrogen um, that you're not dependent on one feedstock, which is, say, renewable electricity or natural gas or um, pink hydrogen from nuclear. It can be from a real different variety of different forms of hydrogen. Um, and so decarbonisation organisations really should be looking to invest in energy solutions that that with the idea to make them actually more resilient to um, the volatility of the markets going forward. Yeah, definitely. That's what's been talked about in all of this, hasn't it? Resiliency and homegrown and avoiding future um, shocks. And you've mentioned the need for yeah a mix of different kinds of hydrogen. Um, and one of the things recently mentioned in the energy security strategy was that. So in that strategy, the UK government um, doubled its 2030 target for the amount of low carbon hydrogen generation capacity that the UK should be hosting by 2030. That went up from five to ten um, gigawatts. There wasn't any mention of pink at this stage that you mentioned, um, but they did really firm up that commitment to twin track blue um, and green. So given your background, given the fact that Centrica is part of the government's hydrogen task force, what was the reaction when that strategy came out and when that was announced? So the doubling of the, the target has been generally welcomed across the, the industry and, and Centrica um, included. Um, just it simply highlights the UK government's aspiration to see hydrogen play a vital role in decarbonisation. I think it's doubling down on that. So that was that was positive. And, I, and it's also it was it was useful to see it you know the uk is not alone in this we had the eu repower strategy that also saw doubling of its hydrogen commitment from 40 gigawatts to 80 gigawatts by uh, 2040 and these are some serious numbers some really big undertakings so just to put it in perspective five gigawatt target would have been around 47 terawatt hours um, of hydrogen that would have been needed in the UK by 2030. Doubling of that, you're close to 100 terawatt hours. So these are seriously big numbers. And um, having said that, we're very conscious that the levelized cost of hydrogen, so it's the cost of actually making hydrogen and delivering it to customers, that needs a focus and attention and needs to come down in terms of cost. And really the only way that's going to start is actually if we start rolling this stuff out and, and, and getting low carbon hydrogen into the market and into the production chain. And so we are calling, as the rest of the industry is, for, for government to accelerate its um, uh, its commitment on the, on the mechanisms that will actually Actually deploy hydrogen. So it's really good news that we've got the long-term large targets, but actually the mechanisms such as the hydrogen business model, the low carbon hydrogen standards, which is really crucial for showing the transparency of how decarbonizing, how, how decarbonizing uh, hydrogen can be. Those mechanisms are really important to come forward. Um, and the last one, which is really crucial, is around hydrogen storage. Um, we've, it was really positive uh, when they announced the double 
doubling of the target, but we are calling for government to um, bring forward their work on looking at hydrogen's role um, for storage. Um, and, and we've made a public commitment and we're still backing that around converting our rough gas storage facility to enable hydrogen storage. Um, it can store around nine terawatt hours of hydrogen, which is around half of what the Committee of Climate Change estimate is required by 2030. Um, and uh, it's really positive to, sit, to hear that the government are, are recognising that storage is a key part of hydrogen, and we're, we're urging the government to bring forward that uh, hydrogen business model for storage um, for, um, earlier than 2025. Yeah, of course, that makes complete sense. And it's been the same with renewable energy, hasn't it? Sort of, yeah, the, the wind target's great. Where's the storage? Absolutely, yeah. For it. Um, so after setting the scene of where we're at with hydrogen in the UK and how that fits into the global context, I think it's good to have some time to drill down into some of the specifics to rolling this out, which, as you say, is the only way to get the costs um, down. So I'm sure we'll have people listening um maybe thinking about exploring this for their businesses or their local areas. Um, so I'd like to get a feel on, yeah, what, have we mapped it in the UK? What what locations are best for blue? What locations are best best for green? Um, and I understand they're not necessarily the same or, or easily interchangeable. Yeah, it's a good question. And actually, um, the way the government and industry have looked at hydrogen, they've probably looked at it from an end use case first and sort of the cluster zones that have happened in the UK. You sort of see where are my biggest customers um, that are, you know, hydrogen has a role at the moment as an industrial product gas. Um, but what the UK government and industry is trying to do is convert that from a product gas into actually an energy carrier for to displace natural gas. Um, and therefore we see blue hydrogen, um, which is typically um, needs to be located um, where it, you can actually store and sequester, permanently storing the CO2. And we've heard from the UK government's um, low carbon hydrogen standard that they recognise geological storage of CO2 from, from blue hydrogen as, as meeting the low carbon hydrogen standards. So that means it sort of dictates where blue hydrogen can, can often be located, which is sort of near seashores or, or or near um, uh, storage facilities that can take the CO2. Um, and that will either need um, sort of you know, large investments in, in piping infrastructure or locations that are strategically placed near those ability to sort of store um, CO2. Um, so that's that's blue hydrogen and the scale of blue hydrogen, the kind of projects that we see are, are, sig are significantly big. And, and the idea is that they are um, sort of clusters of them that produce in the hundreds of megawatts and that provide hydrogen to a cluster of end users. Um, however, we, we've been very excited about sort of seeing, well, how does how can we get hydrogen to our own customers? And, and that's one of the reasons why we've um, we've backed a really exciting UK um, company called Hyrock, um, and we've backed them through a minority investment. Now, they take the same concept, which is to take a feedstock such as natural gas, or it can be biomethane or waste gas, and can convert that into hydrogen. But actually, the really exciting thing there is that the carbon dioxide is actually solidified in, in carbon black form. And then that carbon black can be moved around. It can actually be sold as a, as a, as a, as a valuable product um, for um, impregnated into building materials, sequestered into soils, or used in tyre manufacturing. So actually, it's a usable product. And, and we see that more 
a technology like that, which is um, relatively small but scalable um, and can be integrated further down sort of the distributed energy supply chain compared to sort of large blue hydrogen um, production facilities. When it, when it comes to green hydrogen, again, you, you've got the benefits of varying scales. Um, we do see um, green hydrogen being um, a key driver for being able to store excess renewables in the grid. So last year, I think UK, we, we had to curtail, unfortunately, four terawatt hours of, of renewable energy um, simply because the grid couldn't take it. And there's some really interesting studies um, from academics in Edinburgh University that are envisaging we're going to have to curtail about about nine tera, seven to nine terawatt hours of renewable electricity um, by 2030, um, of which it's costing at the moment, it's costing 250 million pounds a year um, of energy payers money to, to pay for that curtailment. And it will go up to six. 600 million pounds a year and that's where we really see big storage um, to allow sort of curtailed energy to be stored when the sun is shining and wind is blowing but we don't need that energy you store it in hydrogen form and then you provide it um, to the energy users at those times when the wind is not blowing and the sun isn't shining. Yeah, of course, super exciting use case. I'd say that after hydrogen energy storage is probably the topic that we get searched the most for. <laughs> Um, one of those hotly watched technologies and, and topics. And it's clear that, yeah, batteries aren't going to get us all the way there at the best cost and lowest impact. So I'm sure a lot of people will be watching um, watching that. Um, and we've talked about some of the other use cases for hydrogen. You've mentioned that it's already being uptaken in um, industrial settings in some cases, which we've covered in the other parts of this um, podcast. We've also mentioned that for some use cases, businesses looking to use the hydrogen don't need to be at the production site. So if they're using it for something like heating, um, for example. So I do want to come on to hydrogen for heating, um, something that's been talked about a lot um, recently. As you mentioned, energy market volatility means that there's a lot of talks about alternative um, heating. So I wanted to get um, information about um, why your business is supporting hydrogen as a means of decarbonising um, home heating. There's so much talk about heat pumps um, at the moment, and IRENA and some other organisations have said, you know, we should go for heat pumps for domestic heating in particular, um, hydrogen saved for when it's it's the only option, um, really. So I wanted to get your views on what, um, what Centrica Business Solution is looking at in terms of applications of hydrogen in the UK for heating and, and likely timelines on that. Sure, yeah. I probably start with Centrica as a whole, and I and I probably start by saying actually Centrica does see a role for both. I'm really excited about the work that they're doing around heat pumps. Um, they launched their offering earlier on this year with the aim of installing a thousand by the end of this year. So uh, yeah, start by saying from re recognising that actually Centrica and British Gas and Centrica Business Solutions um, really do see a powerful role for heat pumps. But the the good thing I, I think that we're recognising is, and we're recognising it earlier, is there is no silver bullet, and I keep saying this in, in decarbonisation, so to pin, underpin the whole of decarbonising heat in the UK, um, where UK has one of the most developed and advanced gas systems, um, poses a lot of risks to sort of say, I found one solution and that one single solution is going to be the saviour of decarbonising heat. It's also important to put that in the context that even the UK government have 
very publicly stated um, they have they are making a conscious decision on um, whether there is a role for hydrogen for decarbonizing heat and that decision will be by 2026 so I think we, we ought to have a, a really big role to play from now until 2026 to really showcase the potential for hydrogen for decarbonizing heat um, because we are a core part of the industry and I think anyone who is in the in the industry who is providing heat to customers, whether they're commercial or residential, has a role to play to sort of showcase all um, options. Um, and, and, and we are excited of what we can see the potential that hydrogen can bring for decarbonizing um, heating. Um, one of the challenges with um, decarbonizing heat is just the peak demand of heat at particular times of the year. It is absolutely significant, and um, and the gas networks have been very aware of this. Effectively, they they you know the gas network has been like a battery uh, for natural gas in the past. When everyone switches on their heating in the middle of the winter, um, they just expect that that energy will be there. And actually, relying on a um, on a, just a one form of electrification of of um, heating um, will either require so much um, overproduction or overinstallation of renewable energy uh, to meet to ensure that that heat electrified heat is decarbonized um, or unfortunately rely um, on fossil based um, power sources to make up that peak demand um, so what we have is um, an intermittent renewable energy production system and we will grow that and the intermittence will grow and we've seen that and that's been part of the um, volatility of the energy prices over the years um, with a heat demand where over the winter is significantly greater and in the summer it, it's really quite small and that's why we really see a role for hydrogen and going back to that sort of concept we're, we're developing what we have been developing around rough you store that renewable energy in the form of hydrogen uh, when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining um, and then at the peaks in the, in the sort of still winter night it's in the form of hydrogen and delivered to customers through a boiler and so because of that and because we're sort of looking at it we, it's a whole systems approach and it's a whole systems issue isn't it it's not just sort of how do you decarbonize heat but actually you don't have knock-on impacts on, on other sectors like decarbonizing electricity when you look at it from a whole systems approach then you start seeing actually there might be a role and we do believe there is a role for hydrogen in decarbonizing heat that makes sense thank you so much for the overview and and will i'm aware we're running out of time on our section of the podcast um so just a quick question i think to wrap up a lot of the things you've mentioned so you've mentioned um how this is a, a complex topic to navigate because it's not mature um technology and how there's no single silver bullet you need those multiple solutions to build resilience and you need to look at this as a whole systems issue and we need to look at it now um, to time in with what the government's doing and what climate science tells us is is needed. Um, so I wanted to wrap up really by looking at how um, how your organisation is communicating um, some of that. I'm sure there are a lot of people that would love to dig into that in into detail, but some people might be confused or in, intimidated by that. Yeah, it's a great question. And just to just to sort of finish it off, and it's the great work that Centrica Business Solution is is working alongside its customers. And and you've said something really important there, which is it starts now. And that's that's actually our campaign. It begins here, which is really crucial. And that what we mean by that is everyone has a role to play. Um, as a, there is no single right answer, and that's why sort of businesses have a role to play by in just exploring and working with partners such as Centrica Business Solutions to explore 
all potential avenues for decarbonizing um, and just ask as many questions and 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 get comfortable with the sort of technology landscape and what what works for different application applications and we always and i'm absolutely guilty of this we always want to find the easiest solution or to think yeah this is going to work for everything but unfortunately as we've seen with um decarbonizing energy in the one size does not fit all um and in the context of hydrogen whilst most organizations may not see the commercial benefits just yet of of hydrogen in the near term it's important that there's a recognition and understanding of the benefits that it can bring um with the market volatility and how it may fit within their energy pathways. Thanks once again to William for his time and although hydrogen is such a complicated topic I hope we've set the scene and answered some of your frequently asked questions. If you are keen to take a deeper dive into this topic then you're in luck. This episode is as I mentioned part of our master's series of content on hydrogen hosted by ED in partnership with Centrica Business Solutions. This series, as well as this podcast, also includes an ED Explains guide to hydrogen for net zero. So this is a free to download guide, setting the scene on hydrogen production usage at present and mapping out how businesses of different sizes and sectors can begin exploring hydrogen as part of their net zero transition in the future. You can access the guide at ed.net forward slash content forward slash download. Once again, that address is ed.net forward slash content forward slash download. Also included in this master's series is a 45 minute masterclass. This webinar was broadcast live on Thursday, 12th of May, 2022, and is centered around a Q&A with William, who we've just spoken to from Centrica Business Solutions. And that was kindly hosted by Matt, my content editor here at ED. We had hundreds of people tuning into that masterclass and probably one of our liveliest question boxes ever. Um, So I'd really encourage you to listen back at your convenience. You can do that by heading to ed.net, clicking events in the menu at the top and then dropping down to webinars and masterclasses. So once again, let's go to the ed.net homepage, select events, then select webinars and masterclasses. And with that, no, it's about time to wrap up this episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Um, So thank you all for listening and thanks once again to all of our speakers for this episode and to our sponsors. If you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you have and that I haven't gone, uh, yeah, 240 miles in vain, you can check out all of our past podcast episodes on the ED SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple and Google channels. You can also subscribe on any of these platforms to make sure you never miss an episode going forward. But for today's episode, that really is it. It's a goodbye from me. Goodbye.